0: Good morning, church. So wonderful to be with you. Um, this is one of those Sundays that happens a lot. There, We, we carry different things with us into worship, don't we? Um, and this is one that uh, I, I am carrying on this day, both celebration and grief of a life of a great man that you know better than I am. And And uh, again, I, I can only imagine your connection in just a little less of the year of knowing him. He is one of the first people I met, deeply impacted my life, and, uh, and I carry that with me even as we worship today. I, I share this with First Service. I know I've said it to you before, but a friend of mine said a while back, I was at a funeral one time, they did communion at that funeral, and they said there is no moment um, while this side of Jesus coming back when we are closer to the ones who have gone on before us than what we just participated in. And I know sometimes we can just kind of do that because that's what we do on Sunday morning. But we are communing, not just with the saints who are here among us now, but the, those who have gone on before. And boy, uh, Bob's experience of that communion time with Jesus is so much richer than ours. But he is with us today, and, and I celebrate that. So thank you for uh, being a church that nurtures and sustains lives like that that make an impact in the world. I also want to take just a moment, I don't know if he's in here, just to thank Monty too. Uh, you know, this is a, a church that treasures different voices. I'm the main one that has the opportunity to preach, but I'm not the only one. Um, and, uh, and I love it on, on, on weekends And I'm not here. You know, Monty just dives right into the series. He's so gifted. Um, and and I, I think about this. My first impression of Monty is what I saw when I, when I watched the sermon um, after I got back. Here is a guy who deeply loves people and loves the word of God. Um, We met first by Zoom, a little conversation about the potential of us coming here. I still remember the questions Monty asked. He asked about you. And he asked about what I try to preach in such a way that it would be practical and impactful of the word of God to all ages in the church. And I don't know if I do that every week, but I'm trying. But I love the fact he loved people. He loves the people he serves. He loves the word of God. And we get to see that when he practices youth ministry and worship. But it's cool. We got to see that as he preached last week. So I just want to say thank you to him uh, because it helps. You'll see this will fit in actually later on. It helped me practice the sermon before I preached it. Because uh, a good buddy of mine in Dallas, I think I told you this, he, uh, they, they got a new preacher coming, but he's not there yet. And he said, hey, would you be willing to come up and we'll put you up in a nice hotel. You can make it a vacation weekend and, and preach for us. And he said, oh, by the way, it's a home game for the Cowboys. <laughs> so, so Luke and Melanie and I got to preach. I never got out of church faster. And we went to uh, uh, AT&T Stadium and enjoyed that game. So thank you, Monty, for letting me do that and enjoy our time with family. It is great to be back with you. We've been doing this series Um, that we're talking about, what does it look like? Does God give us a visual picture of our mission that we talk about here? Finding hope, living with purpose, being disciples who make disciples. And what does that look like to get into this adventure of God, not just bringing us to heaven when we die, but impacting the world on an ongoing basis as we live. And God has given us this visual picture in the Old Testament of him walking with a whole community of people into the adventure of his mission. We call it the book of Exodus. We're not diving deep. We're just doing an overview of it. But we've been going through this book and we're coming to kind of a a central place in that book. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to we're going to do, again, kind of an overview of a couple of chapters. I won't read both of these chapters, um, so read all of it when you have time. I'm just going to read a little bit at the beginning, the middle, and the end. So again, if you have your Bibles, this is the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned all the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer Back to the Lord. Skip forward to the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he goes on to give an overview of what we call the Ten Commandments. And after he speaks, it says in verse 18, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us to yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you to see so that the fear of God and the awe of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance where Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think I've told you before, at least certain in my class, but I think I've told you here before, one of the most difficult places for me to live out my Christianity is behind the wheel of a car. Just being honest, not always the best driver. And I have many struggles, but there are two that are kind of symbolic of my struggle. They are speed limits and stop signs. I find these two things incredibly difficult. I think about stop signs, man, it is so, it feels like forever to come to a full stop and then go. It just, you know, it feels like it's kind of made to just kind of roll through it a little bit. And there've been times that some of our city's finest have, uh, have gently pulled me over and reminded me of stop, actually means stop. But the thing that actually I struggle with even more are speed limits. And I will admit it started early. I think I just had my license for a few months, maybe, and it was the first time my mother had agreed for me to go out and live out an early adventure. It would be the first time that I got to drive on my own in the evening on the other side of the town ever since I got my license, and I thought, oh, this is going to be so great. And I had it all planned out. It was going to be wonderful. I was going to pick up my girlfriend, take her to the movies, and we were going to have fun and then just drop her back off, and it was, it was awesome. And it was so exciting because I get in my car, and it was a classic muscle car, man, a 1978 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Five speed, and I'm ready to go. And, and here's the thing: the adventure got stalled on the way to her house, because driving through her neighborhood, I got busted for doing 33 in a 25. I love it. Some of you groan with me. This is painful. <laughs> Here's the thing. I will admit to you, in my 16-year-old heart, I felt like I had suffered a great injustice. For several reasons. First of all, I was trapped and tricked because I was driving through the neighborhood. I'm looking out, and I didn't see anything except for the top of a hood of car. And this is a brilliant way that they pulled us over at that time. They'd set up a speed trap, put the first car, had its hood up, so you couldn't see the cop behind them. So I was trapped. And I was tricked. The other thing is I talked to some of my cop friends and they're like, we usually don't pull for, you know, it was less than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. It just feels wrong. But the hardest thing for me is that speed limit. 25 miles an hour is painful. In fact, I've had friends that tell me that a car is not designed to go that slow. By the way, don't try that in court because it doesn't work. Yes, they actually make signs that say this. 25. Yes, your car can go that slow. I love it. That's actually on a street. It was made for me. Then, of course, I thought I want to see a couple other signs, and these are signs that I want. Speed limit, whatever. That's what I want, and we are protected. Now, go have fun because you won't cause any damage or damage to you. Now, the one on the right is the one my wife will tell you is what I really think. It's 35, of course, unless Mr. Important is running late. <laughs> then the speed limit does not apply. Then my favorite one I found, of course, for here, speed limit 80, 85, maybe 90. Don't go 100. Oh, what the heck? It's Texas. <laughs> <laughs> now, a serious moment, especially for y'all, serious moment. Parents, I do have your back. I have since matured some. I still feel this way, but I recognize speed limits, stop signs are there for our good and our protection. Please obey them. Don't learn the hard way like I did. But, but I want to be honest, there is this little part of my immature heart, still there a little bit, but there's a little part of my heart that says what I hate about speed limits and stop signs is they feel impersonal, arbitrary, and burdensome, don't they? It's impersonal, These just signs out there, somebody wrote it, it feels arbitrary, No, know it's not, but it feels arbitrary, and it feels like an impediment to the adventure that I want to live when I'm driving behind the car. Now, why do we start this way? Because when we come to this central place in the story of God's adventure in Exodus, we come to this thing that we call, the Bible doesn't call it this, more on that in a moment. We call it the Ten Commandments. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we struggle with this part because we treat the Ten Commandments like speed limits and stop signs. We feel like the Ten Commandments are arbitrary impersonal, if we're honest sometimes, a little bit limiting and burdensome commands that we have to live out. Part of what I want do here, again, we can't dive into it deeper, we're just doing an overview, but I want to get a sense of a bigger picture of what's going on when God gives us these 10 statements here, we call the 10 commandments, the Bible doesn't call it that. What is it? Well, the first thing I want to do is, let's understand there is a story behind the words that we get in chapter 20. And that's why we have to start in chapter 19. There's a story behind these 10 commands that the commandments are set in. It's not a code book. You don't get the 10 commandments in a code book of rules of God's people. It's set in the story of a long, ongoing relationship. And we've been looking at that up until this point. But very importantly, chapter 20, where you get the Ten Commandments, is following, very importantly, what God says in chapter 19. And what you find in chapter 19 is God says those things we're going to talk about are set in the story of who I am as God and what I've already done for you and where I want to go with you. On this adventure of walking with God. Let's just look a couple, couple things at the opening of this in chapter 19. First of all, in verse 4, we see maternal imagery that God gives in terms of what he's already done. Before you ask a thing, what has he already done? He said, you remember what I did in Egypt. When I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now we know God... has revealed himself as father, but we also know there is no gender in God, so there's these beautiful maternal imagery in Scripture. And anything that we find wonderful and nurturing about mothers, we find first in God. And he said, I carried you out of distress and out of oppression and out of pain, and I brought you to myself. God said, I already did that. Then in verse 5, we get a little bit different imagery. We We get royal imagery. He said, if... You receive my covenant. You will be for me a treasured possession. He said, all the nations are mine, but you are going to be my treasured possession. What is that language all about? But did you know, in the ancient world, kings... When they owned a kingdom, or they ruled a kingdom, they had everything. I mean, the king really technically owns everything. They own all the land. It's all theirs. So there is certain um, stuff, property and all that, that is theirs by kind of position. But they would also have a personal kind of storehouse of treasure. It was theirs, separate from the title. It was close. It was personal. It was unique to them. It was their treasured possessions. Do you hear this language? God says, "The whole I'm king, and so the whole world is mine. But if you receive this covenant that I'm offering to you, you will be my treasured possession. I'm going to bring you in this close, personal heart connection to me. That's powerful. And the third thing he says in verse 6 is he gives them kind of a, a calling kind of identity. He said, if you receive this covenant I'm offering to you, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the invitation into God's adventure we're talking about. Because why? what does this mean? We use this word priest and we kind of throw it around. But think about in every faith, in every spirituality or religion that has used that language, what does a priest do? The primary function of a priest is, as the rabbis would say, to be someone who stands in the gap. What's the function of a priest? To stand into the gap between people who want to connect to God and an otherwise inapproachable God. There's someone. They're not the one who does it, but they're mediating whatever that faith calls them to do. A relationship between people who want to connect with God and the God who is being reaching out to be connected to. And now you think about this: the Bible here says, "God, God says, I'm inviting you to be a nation that is a kingdom of priests." What's He saying? goes all the way back to Abraham's promise. God says, I want to set you aside as holy, set apart people so that you will mediate the relationship between me and the entire world. How powerful is that? What an incredible calling for Israel to have. You're going to be my priest. You're going to be my go-between, connecting people to the world. Now, on top of all of that, hear this. This is so important. These verses in verses 7 and 8, I mean verses 5 and 8 are so significant. First of all, it says in verse 5, listen to this word, so important. God says, if, remember this is in chapter 19 before we get to chapter 20. God says, if you obey and follow me, if you receive my covenant, you keep my covenant, you hold on to my covenant, then these other things are going to be true. You're going to be my treasure possession. You're going to play this role in the world. If. And then it's so important. Let's look at this again. Got to underline this. Before we get to chapter 20, it says this in verse 7 of chapter 19. Moses brings the word, sets before them the words that God gave them. And look at verse 8. It said, the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And Moses brought there. if you're an underliner or a circler, circle this word. Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So what's the big deal about that word? Listen, this is so important. If God says if at the beginning, and what they bring back is an answer, what does that mean what God was saying was? It was a question. Or the way I say it, this is so important, what the Ten Commandments will represent and everything behind it was a proposal, not an imposal. Do you hear me? God is not coming and dropping arbitrary impersonal rules on people. He is proposing a relationship with them. He offers it and they answer. And he does not give them a single word of command, as we would call it, until they already said, yes, we will do this. I want to think about a couple different images, because again, I have a hard time when I come to the Old Testament thinking about this in any other way. It feels speed limit stop sign. We talk about the word law and all of that. Let me give two suggestions. One comes right out of the text. One is just kind of an image that you'll see later on in Scripture. The first one, I say, can you think about the Ten Commandments as a blood oath? A blood oath. And I, for this image, I go back to one of my favorite movies. Um, it's called the outlaw Josie Wales. If you like old Westerns, this is, I think the best one ever made. This is me best one liners. It's awesome. So it starts out with this guy who just wants to be a simple farmer. He gets his whole family is is decimated, abused, all that. So he's drug into the civil war ends up being an outlaw All that by the end of the movie, he's finally getting a place with this ragtag community that's come around him to try to settle down. And the problem at this point in time, there is huge tension for all the obvious reasons between those who would settle in the land and those who are already there, in this case, the Comanche tribe. And it's setting up for a moment where there's going to be this big war between the Comanches and these settlers. And before they duke it out, Clint gets on a horse and goes out to meet Chief Ten Bears to propose a relationship instead. And he sets out, he said, here's my proposal. We'll just kind of keep to ourselves. We'll brand all of our animals. We won't touch any of yours. And you, rent, you go in the land and we'll go in the land. And if you want to butcher some of our cattle, come on and do it. And the chief says, look, you're not offering me anything we don't already have. And he said, I know that. But what I am saying is that people can actually live one another with one another and not butcher each other. Can we propose this relationship? The chief agrees to it. How did they seal that relationship back in the day? They would take their hand, and they would cut it with a knife, and they would clasp it in the hand of the other person. And their blood would mix as if to say, I'm all in this. This is a relationship, covenant relationship, a blood oath. What a powerful vision. God says, from the cutting of the deal to Abraham, all the way up to Jesus, I'm going to cut a deal with my people. And I'm going to make a blood oath of relationship. That's a powerful image that I think about. The other one comes in the text itself, though. And I could give you all sorts of references to Jewish history and background. I just want to focus just on the language of the text. Maybe you caught it already, but I I bet if I just kind of point this out a little bit more, you're going to get it. What is the image that is put in front of us before we get to the Ten Commandments? Think about it this way. What did God say? If you receive my covenant, You will be my treasured possession. You will be mine and I'll be yours if you do this. And then he said, Moses, give those words to my nation. And the nation gave their answer back to God. What does that sound like? If you would take me, God, as your God, and you will be my people. And they say, we will. What does that sound like? Proposal of marriage. And if that's what it is, then all of a sudden the Ten Commandments are not speed limits and stop signs. What they are, are the wedding vows of a covenant relationship. God did not impose it on his people. He offered himself to them. He said yes. And if you go read it, literally what the Ten Commandments represent is God's handwritten wedding vows with his people. Totally different picture than this arbitrary burdensome rule in fact let's unpack that a little bit Uh, let's let's think a little bit about what we call the 10 commandments the bible calls the 10 words let's get a closer look the 10 words Uh, think about this way the beginning of chapter 20 it said these are the words that God spoke to the Israelites if you want to see this even more uh, you don't have to look there, but you can write down chapter 34, verse 28. This is how the whole scene ends because, you know, God has to rewrite them. There's a whole scene we'll get to later. He has to rewrite the vows for them, but it says, Moses took the tablet on which all the words of the commandments had been written, And it says in my Bible, in chapter 34, verse 28, this is the way it's translated. There's a big hyphen that says, and all the words that God has spoken are are on the tablets, hyphen, the Ten Commandments, and it's capitalized. That's beautiful, but that's just not a right translation. That's not what it says. Literally, it says, he wrote down all the words on the tablets, hyphen, the Ten Words. That's what the Old Testament calls, what we call the Ten Commandments. These Ten Precious Words of Covenant, totally different picture. So think about a couple of different ways. What, why do we think about it this way? What, why does it matter this way? One of the analogies I love, I put this up and I mentioned this before in class, and I'll, I'll use this image again because it's really important. I want you to think about what is it that these words of God represent to us. Think about a fence around a playground. They've actually done studies with children about this. It's so profound. They've done studies with children where they have two different identical playgrounds. The only thing that's different is the fence around it. And so in group one, they say, go play. You can play anywhere you want in the playground. Do you know where all of the kids stay, where there is no fence? Do you know where they go? They cluster in the middle of the playground. But all you have to do is put a fence up around the playground, and they will explore every inch of the playground that they are allowed to explore. Why? Because that provides boundaries in which it is safe. For them to explore. The 10 words of God are not burdensome rules. They are relationship protecting boundaries. And God says, I want you to explore and enjoy the fullness of our covenant relationship. Just do it within the boundaries I have placed for you to experience the fullness of life and health. Isn't that amazing? And we could do this with all of them we don't have time. Let me just give one example of how these 10 words are life-preserving, relationship-preserving boundaries and not imposed rules. Of all the things, if you were going to summarize 10 things to follow God, you were going to say, these are the 10 core things about living out your covenant vows with God. Isn't it strange that of all the things you might say, one of the rules, so to speak, is to rest. A commandment of Sabbath. not that crazy? Like all the things he would say, like church attendance and all that kind no, of rest. I'm commanding you, God says, to rest. Why might that be significant in the history of their relationship? What did this whole relationship come out of? Where has Israel spent the last 400 years, folks? In slavery, working seven days a week. In fact, this is... Even more important way to put it. God says, I want to wire into the vows that I make with you and the vows that you recite back with me. You need to know listen to this, so important. Your identity is not based on your performance or your production. Oh, I'm, I'm amazed. I just wish the Bible were so much more relevant to the world today. Wouldn't that be great if it just actually spoke to us today? Does anybody struggle? With your identity being based on your performance or your production, for 400 years, the only basis of their significance to their king pharaoh was how many bricks they made. And we live in a culture where every day of your life and often every day of our lives, people are putting scorecards over our head and they're judging our performance and our production and we can actually go home at the end of the day feeling better or worse about ourselves based on what we produced. God said, I want it in the covenant vows to command you to rest because my performance and my production is what your identity will be based on. That is life And I'm telling you, if we practice those things, it'll change your life. I remember one of the reasons I left law, there was a lot of them, I was called into ministry. But one of the reasons I left law is my first year of law, and I'm looking at a guy who does this well. I didn't do this well. My first year of law, I was a litigator, and I lived at the office. I literally would sleep in my office sometimes. I billed more hours by May than the rest of the um, junior partners, and I wouldn't partner, but the associates did by the end of the year. I'm not proud of that. I was a workaholic. My wife would come and sleep on my office floor at times so we could be in physical proximity to each other. That was not sustainable. God says, you are not based, your identity's not based on that. Now, I'd love to say it was just the job. But I remember there was a season in my life in ministry. I got caught up in the same thing. I remember as one of, just a sweet leader of mine, a love him, great man. But I picked up, not his problem, mine, I picked up a vibe from him that any Sunday I wasn't there and I wasn't preaching, I wasn't doing my job. So instead of last Sunday, where people are so grateful that Monty preaches and we hear a word from somebody else, I felt like I wasn't doing my job and I stopped taking days off and I started working more and more and more and I got out of rhythm and almost destroyed my life. God says, I want you to base your identity with me on my performance, my production, not yours. That's just one example of how the 10 words of God are life-preserving and life-protecting. And think about this, the big picture of all of them. Really, if you group the first four, it's protecting and preserving your relationship with God. And the last six of the 10 words are protecting and preserving your relationship with family and with the rest of the world. All of them are life preservers in three core relationships. By the way, does this sound familiar? I want to protect and preserve your relationship with God. I want to protect and preserve your relationship with your biological and your spiritual family. And I want to protect and preserve your witness to the entire world. That is our mission. Meet up, God. Plug in to community and family and live out like we'll focus on next week to the rest of the world. God says from the very beginning, I want to give you boundaries to protect those core relationships. By the way, here's something that you can do that might be a blessing to you. Do you know what people have done? Once we realize, so this is so important. Once we realize that grace came first, we can hear the ten words of God in a whole different way. You know what people have done with the ten words we talked about? These wonderful ten guidance. People will use them as avenues for prayer. Now, I, I hear, hear me. When I was growing up, when I heard them as laws and speed limits and stop signs, I would get guilty about them. What if they are like the little warning light on the front of the dashboard of your car? Some things people do once a week or maybe every night is just quickly think through these 10 different, these 10 different guidance uh, things from God and say, God, is there any place where I'm climbing over the fence? God's not going to beat you up and throw fireballs down from heaven. It's just an invitation to get back in the boundaries of the place where he's called us to play because he's protecting our relationships. So ask him, are you the real God of my life? Ask him, am I substituting any other thing for you, right? Am I taking you so casually, so lightly that that I am demeaning the relationship I have with God? Am I out of balance in my rest? Am I honoring parents, not just parents, Do you know, throughout... History, the Jewish people have called that that fifth command an invitation to think about how well we submit to authority in our life. Is that not a good marker? When I'm all up in myself about me, boy, I can get off the rails. Again, think of Jesus' expansion of this. I'm not killing somebody right now, but boy, I can do it with my words and my thoughts. He said, preserve the boundaries of your marriage relationship. And not just that, Jesus expands that to don't treat other people like objects that just fill up your own um, self-worth, self-value, or your need, right? Don't take something that's not yours, right? Don't tear down other people with your language and your lies. Speak honestly to each other. And then it ends with this really powerful one, this word covet. We don't do much with that anymore, but why is it that one of the greatest prayers in history says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want because God provides so I don't have to, doesn't mean you don't have to want for things, but I don't want to have unruly desires that get outside of the boundaries where I'll do anything to get what it is I want. Do you know this? these are wonderful markers to say God, is there any place I'm climbing over the fence and would you help bring me back? Hear me again. Chapter 19 comes in 420. Why is that so important? Grace came first. He already delivered him out of Egypt. He already brought him to himself. He already proposed himself to them before they said yes. Even in the Old Testament, I've said it before, I'll say it again. God did not become a Christian somewhere between Malachi and Matthew. He didn't find grace. It's always been grace. It's always been about what he did. And it's always been his performance. And then he invites us into it. These are markers for that. The last thing the text gives us is this really strange but beautiful picture at the end that just reminds us, as grace-centered as God is, let's be really clear, this is not an equal partnership to which we are invited. And yes, I'll use one of my old school references here. In my opinion, one of the, the greatest basketball player to ever live, we can wrestle about this, Michael Jordan. And there was one game, famously, some of you know about this, there was one game, famously, he scored 69 points, totally decimated the other team. And they came and interviewed, the guy that's standing next to him here, a guy named Stacy King, who's, a, you know, Bench player, I mean, he never gets in, but Jordan so lit it up that he got in at the end of the game. He got fouled, got to shoot a couple free throws, made one free throw. He scored one point. (laughs) So they kind of interview him after the game. What's it like to play with the great Michael Jordan? He scored 69 points. And I love this, famously. Some of you remember this. Stacey King said, I will always remember this as the night that together, Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points. (laughs) It is not An equal partnership, God speaks and the mountain shakes. Hear me, he loves us, but it's not about your performance or mine. He carries it. He carries it. He's carried it from the beginning. And he invites us to be in on his adventure and his team. And it's glorious, isn't it? And what's so beautiful, God says, I'm inviting you into this staggering adventure where I'm going to do these incredible things in the world, and you get to be on my team. Now, there are covenant vows that we take with him, but hear this, God says, my commitment came first. And so when we get what God was willing to do and what he will commit to in our lives, it becomes a natural response for us to say, yes, of course we will. Of course we do, God. It's a natural response to the one who gave everything to us and committed everything to us first to say, you better believe it. We will commit to you. And with this, I saw a picture of this some years ago. I have told you before, one of the earliest mission trips we'd take, even all the way back in Virginia, is we would go often to the Houston Impact Church of Christ in Houston. It's a powerful inner city ministry. I suspect some of you have been there before, but I remember the first trip we ever took with college students. And there was one day we all loaded up in a bus and we went out to the beach and the water was just playing around. If you picture these kids were just crazy. I mean, they were wild. They weren't paying attention. They, you know, and it was so funny, like college students tried to tell them to calm down. They wouldn't listen to them. College minister, I came in, tried to say things. They didn't listen to a word I said. The guy that was serving as their youth minister at the Impact Church at that time, he came in and he said something and they jumped. I mean, they, he could say anything. They did exactly what he said. So, of course, as soon as we were, we kind of pulled him aside and said, can you tell us how in the world you got that kind of credibility with these kids? I will never forget what he said. He said, every day that I'm with them, I look them in the eye and I say, I will be here 20 years from now. Think about that in inner city Houston. Every day he would tell them, I will be here 20 years from now. You know one thing that they probably, most of them have never experienced? Somebody who actually keeps their promise. Somebody who actually commits to them, doesn't want anything, and is there again and again and again, especially a male authority figure. So you better believe when he starts with that level of commitment to them, it is so natural for them to come back and say, whatever you want. By the way, I realized as I was writing this, that the time I went down there was about 20 years ago. And I was just curious. And I looked him up on the website and I found this. He's still there. He's still there, 20 plus years later. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's what's going on in the book of Exodus. God says, will you come and receive these life-preserving boundary covenant relationships? But by the way, before you say anything, just let me remind you, I'll be here 20 years from now. I'll be here 200 years from now. I'll be here an eternity from now. I am sticking with you no matter what. What do you say? And my prayer is... That again today, maybe it's a renewal for you or maybe it's the first time in your life you ever you look up and you say, I will and I do accept the King of the universe as my God and my personal Savior. Father God, that's our prayer. That is our prayer. You have given everything for us. You have offered everything for us. And Father God... Because you were so serious about it, you made it a blood oath in the life of your son, Jesus Christ. And you said, we don't even have to mix our blood with it. It's all yours. So, Father, make every, every inclination of our heart, when we fail to get up again, to come back to you again and again and again and say, I will and I do follow the king of the universe into your great adventure to make this world your world as it always was intended to be. In the glorious resurrected name of Jesus